morning. So the text is printed on the next page of the bulletin, or you can pick up a Bible from the back if you didn't bring one, and uh, it's right there at the beginning of the Bible, pretty easy to find. Uh, we're starting, uh, we've been, I guess this is the third, yeah, third Sunday in a new series on Genesis 1 through 3. Uh, Genesis 1 through 3 sets the stage for the whole Bible. It really shapes the way that we should look at all of life, all of history, all of reality. Um, and so we think it's fairly important to take a good look at it. So we're, uh, we're going through Genesis 1 through 3. Um, and, and what we looked at last week, we looked at the whole of chapter 1 into, into a little bit of chapter 2, which just uh, as kind of a side note, uh, if you were here last week and you saw that that was the text, it wasn't just chapter 1, it was through uh, chapter 2, verse 3. It's just another example of... Um, somebody making poor decisions where to put chapter divisions because uh, really that the seventh day belongs with the creation week in uh, chapter one if you're going to break it up into chapters. So, uh, But we looked at all of that actually last week. I'm, I'm sorry that it was uh, an hour long. <laughs> it, I, it surprised me as well. My notes weren't that long, but uh, we looked at the song of creation. If you look uh, um, at the, the structure, the rhythm, the patterns, the repetition, the, the way that that text is laid out, it's a song, right? So we looked at it um, as a song of, uh, of creation, and it all leads up. There's kind of two pinnacles that we talked about uh, last week. Uh, it, it, the sixth day and the seventh day are both kind of the high points of uh, the song of creation. And um, so we're looking at the sixth day this morning, the, the, the high point being the creation of humanity, creation of humanity. We'll probably also look at it uh, at least one more time, this passage, uh, before we move um, to the seventh day. But uh, this morning we're going to talk about what it means for humanity to be made in God's image, for humanity to be made in God's image. So that's what we'll talk about this morning. Let's, uh, let's pray and then we'll read the passage. <clears throat> Father, it's uh, true that some of your word, some of the reality as you have revealed it to us, the way that you've made us, some of that is uh, instinctive for us, and uh, much of it is not. Uh, we pray that you would overcome what needs to be overcome in our hearts and in our minds and with our worldviews, so that we would be able to see us in light of your word, uh, see ourselves, uh, us as humanity, that um, we'd be able to see this creature that you've set over all the rest of your creation. Uh, with the humility and the dignity that you um, set forth in your word as we are created in your image. We pray that you would help us to understand this, not just uh, so that we can understand ourselves, but the, so that we can know you, so that we can rightly uh, relate to you and rightly reflect your image which, uh, in which we've been made. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Then God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. 
and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So there are several features of the text. As you look at that, that whole first chapter of Genesis... Uh, the song of creation, several features of the text that indicate that the, uh, the creation of man, the creation of humanity, is sort of the focus of the whole of, of creation, right? Uh, the fact that it's written down, this account, in a language that only humans would read, right? This is for us. Uh, this account of creation is for us. Uh, the fact that it's uh, that here you have the creation of humanity and God's initial interaction with humanity here treated at length, right? Um, compared to the rest of creation, this is the, kind of the longest day that you see um, treated in this account. The fact that humanity is granted dominion over all the other living creatures. The fact that uh, this is the final act of creation after which God declares it all very good. Um, and the fact that... Uh, that there's divine deliberation. Nowhere else in, uh, in the creation account, nowhere else in this chapter, does God say, let's do something here. Right? He just says, and light springs into being. He says, and the, the sun and the moon and the stars spring into being. Right? But here you have this deliberation, this consultation um, within the Godhead before creation. He says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. That first person plural, us, our, that happens a few times there, um, uh, has been confusing uh, throughout the ages, and there's a lot of different uh, attempts to explain why this is put in the plural when God is a singular, uh, he, he acts singularly, it seems here, and um, it's kind of strange for a, a singular God, a singular being, to speak in the plural when he's speaking of himself. Um, people have uh, speculated whether he's talking to the angels. He's not talking to the angels. Uh, speculated whether this is kind of just the, the royal we of such proclamations. Uh, that just doesn't happen much in the scriptures. Uh, it's probably not that. Um, God didn't consult with anyone else. Uh, he actually says in, uh, in Isaiah chapter 40, Who has measured the, water in, the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? like the span of his hand, that's kind of how he marks off the, the heavens, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has apportioned the spirit of the Lord or, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Isaiah 40, it's a rhetorical question. No, no one did, right? He didn't consult anybody. But here it looks like there's consultation, right? Um, and that's for us a hint, at least, of the plurality, uh, the fullness in the unity of the Godhead that we see, um, again, more clearly, uh, we've mentioned this the last couple weeks, uh, it's just a hint that we see here, but we see it more clearly through the rest of the scriptures, especially as you get into the New Testament where we discover that God is one God in three persons. He's the triune God. It's the Trinity that is at work here, and uh, Henry Blochet says that this is just the, the first glimmerings of a Trinitarian revelation. Um, it doesn't quite make sense 
until you know later what God reveals about himself, that he's one God in three persons. <clears throat> so we see with increasing clarity as Revelation unfolds that there is this one true living God whose being is three persons. And in a sense, then, this, we can understand this as the first recorded prayer of the Scriptures. Right? This consultation is uh, the first recorded prayer. That's not so strange to us since we see all through the New Testament in the Gospels, particularly Jesus Christ, uh, the Son of God, one of the three persons in the divine Godhead, uh, praying to the other, right, praying to the Father. And so uh, it's, it's not a surprise to us that God is a praying God, but, <clears throat> um, but that's true. God is a praying God. He doesn't need other beings to have relationship, to have communication, right? He doesn't need other beings in order for prayer to be a reality, God in himself from all eternity is a, is a praying God because he's one God in three persons, the perfect union of three persons. And so humanity then, as we see in our passage, humanity is the result of the prayer of the eternal, intimate, triune God. Humanity is the result of this God's prayer. And it's important for us to think of God in this way. Really, actually, it's not kind of a side note. Uh, it's important for us to think about God in this way because the point of the passage is that humanity is created in this God's image, in the image of this God. Right? Uh, you can't understand humanity apart from understanding God as he truly is, and he's the triune God. Right? You cannot understand humanity apart from understanding the triune God, and you can't understand this God without seeing him as the God who would and did create humanity in his image, the God who did this, right? His making us in his image means that, um, it actually means that you're supposed to look at humanity, humanity, you're supposed to look at the people that you see around you and know something about what God is like. To some degree, you're supposed to be able to look at humanity and see something about God, something true, something real. In our humanity as originally created, and originally intended. We reflect something of God. We reveal something about him. We're not God. We get that wrong all the time. Generally, uh, that's, that's one of our biggest problems, thinking that uh, we're the center of the universe, that I'm the center of the universe, right? Uh, but we're not God. That, that's clear to us from this text. We're just creatures, right? We're not original. We're derivative, right? Uh, somebody made us. God made us. He named us. He owns us. We share a lot in common with other creatures that he's made, right? The animals, uh, we're utterly dependent on God for our existence. He gives us food just like he gives all the creatures their food at the same time, right? Um, <clears throat> Etc. Uh, so we're not God, but we are distinct from the other creatures that God has made. That, again, is clear from this text. Especially privileged, especially honored, we're exalted um, by his free favor. It's not something, obviously, we earned. He created us this way. <clears throat> because we're made in God's image. This is why we, we're especially honored and favored. We're made in God's image, which means we enjoy a unique relationship to him of all the rest of creation. We enjoy a unique relationship to the triune God, and something of him is supposed to become clear and knowable as you look at us. Something of him is supposed to be recognizable in us. And scholars debate exactly how it is uh, you know, what it means that we're made in God's image. Um, and I'm not going to get into all those things. I think the text brings out what's, what's most important in the very next verse. Right? Um, look at verse 27. So, 
God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Right, so uh, that's, that's worth meditating on. Uh, and and um, in a couple weeks, we'll get into um, the significance of this as it pertains to marriage, you know, uh, as it shows up in, in chapter 2. <clears throat> but it's worth meditating just on that one verse. God didn't create just one person. Right? He created two. He says, let's make them in our image. And he made more than one. Right? Uh, he didn't create one person, he created two so that they would be in relationship with each other. And he didn't create them identical to each other, but different. Right? Not duplicates of one sort of asexual being, but two distinct sexes. And even though they're two distinct sexes, two different types of people, two different ways of being a human... <clears throat> even though that's the case, both are human. Right? Each is human in a, in a different way from the other. They're intended to be human not separately, but together, right? in relationship. Just one of those beings doesn't f- fully reflect what it means to be made in God's image by himself or by herself. Right? Again, we'll talk more about marriage in another sermon, but here we see generally that God made humanity Male and female, all of humanity. Male and female is kind of the, the biggest distinction, the biggest difference uh, between types of people that you can see in the world. It's a bigger difference than uh, the difference of the color of your skin, right, or the difference of the height uh, of, your, of your body or the, the color of your hair or whatever, the language you speak. Being male and female is like the biggest difference between humans. <clears throat> and here we can see that God made humanity to reflect him in the union of diversity, Right? The unity of diversity, the essential communion of very different kinds of people. Right? The essential communion. We are all humanity together. Not just, I'm not just a human by myself. We're humanity together. One person, one human, one of the sexes is not enough to constitute humanity as created in, in God's image. So we know uh, now that this is because God himself is perfect unity in diversity. Right? He's one being. In three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, mutually loving and being loved from all eternity. And this is absolutely foundational for us to understand our humanity, like who we are, all of us, um, and our relationship to God. Karl Barth says, in its basic form, humanity is fellow humanity. Humanity which is not fellow humanity is inhumanity. So uh, being made in the image of God, then, is, is always a corporate reality. It's always relational. It's never just I, me. But it's always you also, we, right, us. You as an individual <clears throat> uh, alone could never possibly reflect the fullness of God. You just can't do it. That's not how humans were made. You can't by yourself reflect the fullness of the triune God. You can never possibly fulfill the purpose then for which you're created. You're created to do that in relationship with other humans. His glory, which we were made to enjoy, which is what this passage is about, uh, the, the whole of the song of creation, his glory, we were made to enjoy and to reflect. It's a glory of love. It's a glory of love, which means 
we need each other for that, right? We need to be together. There's relationship involved in that. He enjoyed this glory of love, God did, before he made anything, before he made any other uh, beings, right? Before there were um, any other creatures that were made, he enjoyed this glory of love, and he created us to enter into it, to give himself to us, so that then we would give ourselves to him and to each other, right? Um, and C.S. Lewis calls this uh, a great dance, right? This, the dance of the Trinity, the dance that we're to enter into. Let me read a little bit from uh, Mere Christianity. <clears throat> Christians believe that the living, dynamic activity of love that has been going on in God forever and has created everything else. And that, by the way, is perhaps the most important difference between Christian and all other religions, that in Christianity, God is not a static thing, not even a person, but a dynamic pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you'll not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. And each one of us has got to enter that pattern, take his place in that dance, and there's no other way to the happiness for which we were made. Because we're made in this God's image, and this God is, in a sense, a dance, right? A dance of love between three persons. <clears throat> and we're made in that image. We're supposed to enter into that, and we can't fulfill the purpose for which we were made. We can't find that happiness for which we were made unless we do that. Every time you meet another human, then, every single time you meet another human, you're supposed to think of this God, this dance, this glory of love, and you're supposed to enter in. You're supposed to give yourself for the sake of the other and become centered on that person, right? to center on others. That's what it means to dance, is to center on others, not to make them center on you. And only then are we being truly human. Only then do we reflect truly the image of God who was created in us, uh, who, in which we were created. Right? Um, we only reflect his image when we're loving each other when we're in relationship with each other. Now, <clears throat> I'll ask you, is that your regular observation of humanity? Is it this uh, mutual, self-giving, glorious love everywhere you go? Is that your regular observation of humanity, that we as a race are full of this kind of other-centeredness, that we dance around, that we delight uh, in other people? rather than requiring them to delight in us. That you as an individual, is this your regular observation, that you are always joyfully centered on other people? Is that kind of what you see when you look at the world, when you look at yourself? Um, or do you recognize, I think, the fairly obvious fact that um, every single one of us requires others to center on us? Right? That, that we all try to manipulate that outcome in all of our relationships, that, that people would be centered on us. Even though God made us to reflect his love, his own unity and diversity, we've chosen the path of self-love, self-absorption, self-exaltation. Uh, we've created a society full of supremely, ultimately self-centered individuals, very highly individualistic society we live in, We've managed to make the world a fairly livable place. We've all agreed on uh, that, kind of an unspoken agreement. <clears throat> I'm going to be self-centered. You are too. We'll try to make this thing work out in a way that's pleasant for everybody, right? Um, 
and it is livable even though it's a, it's a distortion of life as God has intended it. Uh, we're so good at being self-centered that we can even pull off living for ourselves while be- believing that we're living for others. Right? We actually trick ourselves into thinking, I'm living for other people, when really, ultimately, we're just using uh, uh, all of our relationships for ourselves. Right? We're so good at self-centeredness, we can fool ourselves in that way. We know somewhere deep inside that self-centeredness runs right against the very nature of reality. I mean, it's kind of one of the worst insults you can give to people is that they're self-centered, right? Uh, we know that there's something wrong with us, something deeply wrong with self-centeredness. Uh, because love, other-centeredness, is actually the nature of reality. Right? It's actually the nature of reality because the triune God is the foundation of all reality. Um, and love is the nature of our own being as humanity created in his own image. And when you don't have love, when you don't have real relationships of love in your life, you know you start to fall apart. Right? Reality's not meant to work that way. And uh, we know it's bad to be self-centered, but we don't know any other way. Right? So we make our self-centeredness kind of look like love, and we call it good. Uh, there's a really good book that uh, some of us are reading together now uh, by... Um, a guy named Clifford Williams, a philosopher, um, called The uh, Singleness of Heart, Restoring the Divided Soul, where he explores kind of what's wrong with us on the inside, what's wrong with our motives, why we do the things we do, and really uh, exposing, even to yourself, like, wow, I didn't know that was in there, but yeah, that's totally in there. Uh, there's something wrong with me on a pretty deep level, and that's pretty painful to, to examine. <clears throat> and he exposes the kind of things about our self-centeredness, the way that we make that look like love, that we uh, perform uh, acts of love, really in order to get love for ourselves, right? <clears throat> so he says what we, what we really want is to get others' approval instead of to love and be virtuous. We sense half-consciously that we can get this approval by appearing to love and appearing to be virtuous. We all sense that, don't we? people are going to like me when I'm a good person, when I serve other people, when I'm generous. Right? Um, and I, I fool myself into thinking, I'm not doing that for selfish reasons. I'm actually being loving and generous and hospitable. Right? Uh, but ultimately, we do those things because we're looking for approval. We're looking for love. We want others to be me-centered. Right? <clears throat> Each one of us, then, has violated our created purpose. Um, and now there's a sense in which humanity is still made in God's image. Right? There's a sense in which we still possess God's image. And the Bible says that that is supposed to shape our estimation of each other and our behavior toward each other, the way we treat each other. It's because you are made in God's image that I'm not supposed to kill you. Right? It's because you are made in God's image that, uh, that it's insane for me to bless God but curse you. That doesn't make any sense, right? It's because you are made in God's image that I'm supposed to treat you well, but the Bible's full of accounts where clearly that doesn't stop people from hating and cursing and using and killing each other because I'm not acting like I'm made in God's image, right? I'm not acting like a human in God's image is supposed to act. I've left the great dance to go look in a mirror 
and pretend that's where I, I see God rather than in the dance. Pretend that I can see God best just by looking in the mirror rather than entering into the dance. But the story of the Bible is the story of God's renewal of us in his image, that we would truly be renewed as human beings uh, made in his image. He made us in order to give himself to us in love, and our self-centeredness has not stopped him from doing that. Our self-centeredness, our self-love, has not stopped the one who truly is love from coming into our lives to give himself to us. God sent the Son, his Son, the eternal Son of God, into the world to become a human, to redeem humanity in his own person, to fix it, to fix what's wrong with humanity, to fix what's broken with humanity in his own person, and to fix the distorted image of God in humanity to make it clear again, to make it clear again. Jesus lived the true human, utterly other-centered, right? Utterly and always and only living for God and living for fellow humanity. Jesus did humanity right because he's the one who is uh, truly the image of God. In fact, he poured out his life to the very last drop for the sake of others. And so it was said of him that he is the image of God. In his life, we see God. In his life as a human, because his humanity was created, created in God's image, we see God. Right? Uh, now when you look at him, you see what God is really like. When you, when you see the Jesus of the Gospels, you see what God is really like. And now when you look at Jesus, you see the glory of the love of God. That other-orientedness, the other-centeredness. If you know Jesus Christ, who is the God-man, who reflects God not only in his divinity, but in his humanity, if you know that Jesus Christ, you know true humanity. You've seen what humans were made to be like. And you see God. You see that those two natures are beautifully and wonderfully compatible. They were made to be compatible. And in Jesus Christ, we see that they are the divinity and humanity of of Jesus Christ. You see that it's not against God's nature, against the nature of his deity, but precisely in accordance with the nature of God's deity to create humanity for the sake of love and to enter humanity, not just create it, but to enter it and to share our created nature and to redeem it for the sake of love. That is in the nature of God's deity to do that, to do what he did in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God is not afraid to be associated with us, right? He created us for that association. It was his idea. It was his plan from the beginning. And when that association was violated by our inhumanity, by our not being like God, our ungodliness, then he initiated the reconciliation and the renewal at the cost of the life of the Son of God himself. He initiated it. He wants to be associated with us. That's the kind of God that we see when we look at his image, the perfect image, Jesus Christ. And as you come into relationship with this Jesus Christ, as you're united to him by his spirit, as you trust in him, and you come into relationship with him, then God remakes you in his image. He remakes, he recreates, refashions you 
in the image of Jesus Christ. It says in Romans 8, Paul wrote that those, uh, those whom he foreknew, which is in a sense a different way of saying those whom he loved before the foundation of the world. <clears throat> those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he, his son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he's predestined, he's also called, he's also justified, he's also glorified. Right? Past tense. He has glorified us in Jesus Christ. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've fallen short of that glorious dance that we were made for. But in Jesus Christ, we've been brought into that dance. We have been glorified in the humanity of Jesus Christ as you're united to him by his spirit. <clears throat> and so it says in uh, Colossians 3, Paul says that you have a new self. You have a new humanity, literally. You have a, a new self, a new humanity, which you're supposed to put on, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. It's being renewed in, in that image of God. In Ephesians 4, you're supposed to put on the new self, that new humanity, <clears throat> which is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and, and holiness. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we also shall bear the image of the man of heaven. Jesus Christ is the man of heaven uh, whose image we are, we are being recrafted in. And that, that recrafting is taking place as the Spirit is working in us, right? That's what we read in the, the New Testament reading, <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 3. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. So looking at Jesus Christ, looking at the true human, looking at the God-man, the one who reveals God to us, who, who shows us what the image of God is supposed to be, right? Looking at him we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who's the Spirit, right? Uh, the third person of the Trinity. The Spirit does this work in us as we look at Jesus Christ. Right, so, so what does all this mean, right? What's the significance of it? What's the, how can we make sense of it the way that it, it uh, engages in our lives? It means that when you encounter Jesus, when you trust in him, when you respond to God's grace in him, then you are called out of yourself, right? Uh, Narcissus being called away from the pool, the image, his, his image in the pool, being called away from the mirror, being called away from the self-love, self-reflection, uh, self-absorption. You're being called out of yourself <clears throat> and into the great dance, the glory of love. And you can't ultimately live for yourself anymore. If you know Jesus Christ, if you're looking at him and you're being transformed into his image, you cannot ultimately live for yourself anymore. It just can't happen anymore, right? Because you're in the one. You are in Christ. You are in the one who ultimately lives for others. And his uh, image of God is, is becoming increasingly yours. You can't just live for yourself. You can't just live for your family or your tribe or your city or your country, your, your people, right? You're called to live and to give yourself in love to others, to all others, Every single human that you meet. We, it's fellow humanity that we share. We see God in each other, right? We see the, the image of God in each other, and we, uh, as we bear the image of God, we, we treat each other basically as, as we would treat God, with that kind of respect, with that kind of dignity, 
with that kind of love and self-giving. Um, that's difficult even for us to do that um, for our own spouse, right, um, and our own children. So you have been talking with some of you lately, the fact that, you know, the, you've got these uh, big points in your life where you become married and you realize, wow, how self-centered have I been now that I've got one other person in my immediate vicinity all the time, it's really, it's kind of like a mirror showing you your self-centeredness, right? How self-centered is that? It's like marriage is a mirror. It's like I'm looking at myself through my marriage. But <clears throat> it does that. It confronts us with the reality that it's very difficult to live for other people. And then as you have children who, who really, really need your attention all the time, and you're really called to live for them and not for yourself anymore, it, you you become aware of the fact, I would rather live for myself. I can't wait. This is not a criticism of date night, but I can't wait for date night to get away from other people and just be with one other person and kind of fulfill myself. Uh, get what I actually want, right? What I actually want in life is not to be surrounded by little children <laughs> or, or others, right? What I actually want is some me time, right? And your marriage and your, your children, they confront you with that reality. It's difficult for us even to live for the, the people who are closest to us. Right? And uh, as, as Joe Pope has taken to saying uh, lately, when he looks at his little granddaughters and he's just got love bursting in his heart for them, he realizes, I'm supposed to feel that way for every single other person on the planet. The love that I feel, when I actually feel it, right, uh, when I'm actually loving these people who are dear to me, that's the way I'm supposed to be with everybody. And it's difficult for us to be that way with anybody. Right? But uh, Jesus Christ is, uh, through his spirit, renewing his image in us. You're supposed to treat all others as you would treat God himself with that kind of dignity, with that kind of love, giving yourself right, to them, uh, because you see that they also bear God's image. And we were made for this kind of communion made for this kind of relationship where I give myself to you, right? Um, you can't just live for yourself anymore if you know Jesus Christ. That's, <clears throat> that's actually part of kind of a side note why Jesus says uh, that we have to see him in those who are hungry and thirsty and estranged and naked and sick and imprisoned, right? He says we have to see him in those people, even the lowest of the low, the people who don't deserve our high estimation, right? The people who go under our radar. We're supposed to see Jesus himself in every single person. And that is the essence of growing in holiness, right? This is the image of God which is being renewed in us in true righteousness and holiness, Paul said. True righteousness and holiness means become more Christ-like. You become more like God, actually reflecting God's image better, becoming more human in your relationships with other humans. Right. Um, Christ-centered holiness, the holiness of those who bear God's image, is humanity in community with God and with each other. And that speaks to all kinds of things. It speaks to prayer, right? God prays. We're made in his image. We pray. It speaks to our fellowship. God is in community. We're made in his image. So we come to church for community, for fellowship. <clears throat> it's, uh, you'll engage in service of others. God lays himself out, each person of the, the Trinity, 
fully engaged in, in laying down themselves for the sake of each other, to serve each other, right? We're made as, in his image, we'll engage in service of others. Self-centered people don't serve, they, not really. They might perform actions that look like service. Uh, but we don't give ourselves if we're self-centered. But other people, other, other centered people, uh, being renewed in the glory of God's image, we do serve. Right? We serve. That means we'll do ministry together. Right? In uh, mutual interdependence on each other. Right? Um, I, I personally have a real problem with this. I've kind of come to grips with this this week. Um, I figure that if the church is going to go then uh, whatever it needs, I can do it. Whatever the church needs to be and needs to do, the activities, the ministries, I could do it, right? If nobody else is going to do it, uh, I can do it. No one else wants to do hospitality, I can do it. I can do it. I'm not complaining about the level of engagement here. (laughs) This is not what I'm doing. I'm saying what's wrong with me, right? Is that if no one else can make arrangements for the physical meeting space, if no one else can uh, balance the budget or play the music for the kids or take the meals to the folks or organize mercy ministries or do evangelism, lead discipleship, administration, uh, get volunteers to staff the nursery, make coffee, etc. If no one else can do that stuff, I can do it. I can do everything that's necessary by myself if no one else is to make this church do what it's supposed to do, right? And I can totally do all those. I, th- I actually think I'm capable of that. And uh, the fact that I think that I can do all this by myself stems right from the root of what's wrong with humanity, what's broken with humanity. Right? It actually goes right to the root of the problem. I don't believe that humanity is fellow humanity. Right? I don't believe that others are actually necessary. I should suffice. Just, just me. I should suffice to make this, this church be what it needs to be, or the ministries take place that needs to take place. I don't believe that I need others. I'm, I'm confessing sin here, <laughs> right? I'm actually confessing sin by saying that I'm a high-capacity individual. Right? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought of confessing that as a sin? I'm a high-capacity individual. I think I could do pretty much everything that needs doing. Um, the gospel comes in and puts us in a place of need, in a place of need before God first. Uh, we are at his mercy, but even at a place of need with regard to each other, right? We need each other. No one can do life on their own. No one can do ministry in the church on their own. If we're going to be a church that reflects the image of God, then we have to do it together. That's just the way he made it. We reflect God's image best when we do that when we work together. Each is going to have to serve. Each is going to have to depend on the service of others. We don't like to be dependent on others, but that's part of what it means being created in God's image. We actually need each other. There's a dance going on that starts in the life of the Trinity itself that actually had no beginning because it's always been taking place in the life of the the triune God. Um, There's a dance going on and you need to enter it through faith in Jesus Christ to be caught up in it in the way that you live your life in all of your relationships. Uh, It's the only way to the glorious fulfillment of your created purpose. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you have uh, 
exposed at least my own need of your grace, um, my own need of reorientation on others. Uh, I confess that I am uh, self-centered in ways that I'm not even aware of, deeply uh, self-centered in ways that are um, destructive to true life. And I pray that you would help me and that you would help my friends here to uh, throw ourselves on the mercy of Jesus Christ, who is the God-man, who is the true image of God in his divinity and in his humanity, the, the one who is um, uh, perfectly uh, revealing you to us and perfectly shows us what we are supposed to be like in relationship with you. We pray that you would renew his image in us by your spirit so that increasingly we would be drawn out of ourselves and that our lives would center on you and on each other. And uh, by doing so, then would your glorious love uh, be known among us and through us in our community and uh, to the whole world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.